0: Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Amy Bender, author of the novel The Butterfly Lampshade.
1: I think the images came first, as is often true for me, and it's the words sometimes come first too, like a singular word as a portal to some resonance or some associative net of ideas and feelings and thoughts.
0: We'll be back with Amy Bender after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash writers. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com draft firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview, then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Amy Bender, author of six books, including The Girl in the Flammable Skirt, which was a New York Times notable book, An Invisible Sign of My Own, which was an L.A. Times pick of the year, The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake, which won a Skiba Award for Best Fiction and was a New York Times Notable Book, and most recently, The Butterfly Lampshade, which was longlisted for the Penn Jean Stein Award. Her short fiction has been published in Granta, Tin House, McSweeney's, The Paris Review, and more. She lives in Los Angeles with her family and teaches creative writing at USC. Her novel, The Butterfly Lampshade, tells the story of eight-year-old Francie who goes to live with her aunt after her mother has a psychotic break and enters a mental hospital. The separation from her mother and a move from Portland to Los Angeles propels Francie into a different childhood, one that is more outwardly stable but also forces her to question her sanity after three separate incidences happened to her that straddle the supernatural— The novel moves back and forth in time between Francie's childhood and early adulthood as she grapples with her past, her identity, and her future. This interview was recorded as part of the Miami Book Fair in October 2021. We began the interview with me asking Amy Bender this question. So I wanted to ask you kind of about your sensibility when you write about this kind of marriage, definitely in this book, The Butterfly Lampshade, between realism and surrealism and it's not just a marriage between these two it really then is reflected through someone's conscious mind exactly i mean i think
1: perspective has become increasingly important to me as a way to think about um reality and what we're trying to render with language on the page when we write. And that, you know, people will ask me if I'm having sort of strange thoughts all day, and I'm really not. I have, a, you know, very sort of mundane to-do lists running through my head. But at the same time, I really believe that all of us have kind of perceptions and moments when things are not queuing to a, a ordinary or direct way of viewing things. Is there even a direct way of viewing things like how do we notice the world and how do we experience the world and part of this book in particular was wanting to move really close to the point of view of the main character and try to kind of unpack what she was seeing as a child and what she was trying to remember as an adult and it's there's this quote i just had my students write on this um, from one of flannery o'connor's essays and she says the writer needs a grain of stupidity meaning the writer needs to not fully understand what she's seeing really in order to describe it more fully. And so I had my students sort of try to look at an exchange or a moment and not really know what it was or try to move away from knowledge into perception really and see what got unveiled and shown in that. And they're writing beautiful things. It's actually been really satisfying to see what they've made. But I think that's part of the butterfly lampshade is wanting to think of what is a child see without maybe knowing what it is and how could I try to capture that
0: yeah so the basic summary of the book you have this young girl Francie and when she's eight her mom has a psychotic break that she really can't come back from she's living in Portland and her mother Elaine is very close to her sister min and you you open the book with them on the phone sort of talking about the mother's A little bit of break from reality and how she's going to care for her her child and there's a lot of fear and it turns out that she has to go to an institution so francie gets sent to la she goes on a train because she won't go on a plane to live with her aunt and uncle who are just just gave birth though her aunt just gave birth basically while she's on the train um to her new cousin, Vicki, who she grows up very close with. And so you see her when she's eight, and then you really see her about 20 years later. Mm-hmm. And, when she, and 20 years later, she's really reflecting on these incidences that happened over the course of three days between her mom going into the institution. And in that time, she stayed with a babysitter and she had kind of a guardian that took her on the train down home, down to L.A. where she currently lives. And she's just reflecting on what that all meant. And, and the, there are three incidents that happened in her life, two um, before or during her, her journey down there. One was she sort of uh, found a piece of paper with a picture of a beetle on it, and the beetle came off the paper and became real. And she stayed with the babysitter for two nights and the babysitter had a lampshade with butterflies on it. And there was a butterfly and a glass of water and she drank it. And then the last one was a little later in L.A. where there were roses on a curtain mm-hmm. that were decorated with roses. And then she found roses at the bottom. So it was like these three items that were jumping between an inanimate to almost like an animate world. And so these are the things she's pondering at the end.
1: The only thing that I would add is the items that she sees all arrive dead. Somehow that image felt important to me in writing about it, that they traversed a boundary that's untraversable between this kind, as you say, the inanimate and the animate, and they arrive in the world that they arrive dead. So they're both miraculous and kind of grotesque at the same time to her and I think to me as well and kind of looking at them as images.
0: And so you were talking earlier with, this, with your students, this, this word perception and how we perceive the world. So I'm wondering, how did you start to conceive of this idea? It sounds like you really wanted to investigate the consciousness of Francie. How did you go from maybe thinking about writing a very close to novel to these items being kind of inciting incidences for her to investigate her life?
1: Images came first, as is often true for me, and this is why I love that you're gonna ask me later about a favorite word, is because the words sometimes come first too, like a singular word as a portal to some resonance or some associative net of ideas and feelings and thoughts. And similarly, this idea of a butterfly emerging, or not, like she never sees it fall out of the lampshade, but she sees the same looking butterfly Um, as a three-dimensional creature dead in this water glass. And there was something about that rupture that felt scary to me. And I was thinking a lot about the rupture in reality that a psychotic person has to contend with and how frightening that is, that rupture that people walk around trying to live with and some do better than others, right? There's a whole range of experiences. And, And then trying to have a character who is exposed to that rupture but has her own kind of viewing of ruptures that are laid upon the world that other people do witness so they actually do happen and what does she do with that there there was just a lot I guess I was thinking about about what different realms like the word realm is I'm currently feeling a little obsessed with that word like what different realms does Francie exist in that for example her cousin doesn't her cousin is pretty clear. She lives in one world and Francie's kind of a traverser and she's kind of got a foot in both. And I think that's why this movement on, you know, from Portland to Burbank that she's trying to track. So in such a detailed way is also about a movement from one realm to another.
0: And what interests you about mental illness and the rupture I mean, so
1: much, I think so much is interesting to me about the mind and perceptions and when they feel imaginative and rich. And for myself, having had moments of extreme anxiety, like when things feel distorted and frightening, or even as a child feeling so susceptible to not really knowing if my stuffed animal was alive or not. Like it just took me so long to understand what was alive and what wasn't. Or like I, I did a talk once for Frankenstein's 200th birthday and was thinking about Frankenstein becoming animate and like just our fascination as humans in these things coming alive. And what did it mean when Frankenstein came alive? And I was just thinking about how, when I'll wash blueberries in the sink. And if one blueberry falls out of the colander and goes down the drain, like I still, I'm a middle-aged woman and I still will be like, I'll feel a little bad for the blueberry. And I'll have to say to myself, like, it's going on its own little blueberry adventure. Like I have such a projection of consciousness into that blueberry. And when I gave my talk, of course, many people came up to me being like, I do that with the strawberries, you know, like, it's just, it's such an impulse. So I guess with mental illness, something gets stretched to a place where it becomes um, a non-functioning place of pain and struggle and, and something is impeding that person's ability to be in the world. And yet we all have sort of subtler versions of this um, in certain moments and certain perceptions. So I guess I just wanted to explore that as many ways as I could in this book.
0: I think too, that sometimes we are just given this sort of didactic explanation of how the world works. And maybe that's not always right. I mean, how could it be right? We don't know how the world
1: works, you know, like as if, as if we, I mean, it just feels like we look to great thinkers over the millennia to try to help us conceive of how the world works, but there's a lot of questions and there should be a lot of questions. It also just, um, Because it pops into my head, there's a remarkable book that just moved me so much by a woman named Alan Sachs who won a MacArthur a few years ago, which was fantastic. And she wrote a book called The Center Cannot Hold. And she suffers from schizophrenia and she wrote a memoir. And it was incredible because it was like reading, because she was willing to talk about it so openly and so directly. And it was like reading a sort of war correspondent from the inside of terrible. Um, battles, talking about her own mind and her own perceptions, but she had enough space from it to be really honest. She went into analysis, she would lay on the couch telling about how many people she'd murdered that day. And she would try to talk to the analyst because alleviating the anxiety and the analyst knew she hadn't murdered anyone. Like it was just, (laughs) it was just what her mind did. And alleviating the anxiety through the psychoanalysis was helpful for her as she contended with the psychosis and she like, she talked about medication and how much it has helped her and all this stuff. But that's so interesting to me. It's just, um, that book felt so moving and so courageous too.
0: Yeah. Because I think one of the things your book points out in some ways that the reality, that reality is a little bit movable. It depends who you are On, on a, on a greater scale. What we see right now with, how some people think of a vaccine and other people don't is reality. But with, with Francie, how she saw the world versus her mother versus her cousin, her cousin and aunt are very, very grounded in this tangible factual world. And her mother is kind of on the other end. And Francie, I mean, she's much more in the tangible world than maybe she even believes she is. Right. But she, she, she has so much fear because of heredity and DNA of what these incidences mean. So they take on a greater weight and influence how she lives her life.
1: Yeah. I mean, exactly, exactly. And, and yes, are there, but she's really, I think what you say is really spot on that maybe more even than she realizes she's in a kind of grounded world that's more stable, but, um, but the anxiety or the worries are certainly present and have to be a bit tested.
0: When she's young and she first sees the butterfly, you wrote, um, you wrote in, like it was kind of like an overlap of psychic and psychotic people in there. It was mm-hmm. something that she was interested in. And then you wrote what Francie said was, I drank it down because I had to. And I wanted to ask you about this, like the, that impulse for her to feel like she had to do it.
1: interesting too that people have kind of noticed the drinking of it down the taking of it in and and i think with writing there's always something for me of noticing what actions or what gestures ring through on the page and that i'm really trying to follow the language more than anything to see what the plot what plot will be revealed so the drinking kind of looked right as a sentence and i also knew that she needed to keep it like this thing had emerged she'd witnessed it i wrote scenes where the babysitter comes out and the babysitter sees that she's witnessed it and or whatever. And I just felt like, no, this was such a private moment, this moment of witness at a time when everything is super chaotic around her and she's a child and doesn't have the language for it. So, so she witnesses it and then she can't, she has to keep it. And what is one way that we keep it? We sort of ingest and take in. And so later there's some question about people coming by and these sort of strange figures coming by and asking for them. And I think, I was thinking, yeah, she has a butterfly in her. So, something of that rupture is inside her, whether or not it ever gets expressed, you know, that there is something, it just really felt right that it had to be taken in. You can't, if you walk in a room and you see the butterfly in the water glass, you can't just leave that room if you're francie at that moment. It's part of your life and part of your history.
0: Yes, and it also seems to emphasize in, in a certain way how truly alone we are on this journey through life that what is going on with the universe and our minds and the things we're thinking about the things that obsess us like when you just see someone walking down the street they're just this shell of a body but what is going on inside is like like the big bang theory all the time
1: yeah I mean it's stunning and it's stunning how much it keeps going you know like it just feels like you think you've kind of unpacked one thing and there are layers and layers beneath it which is good for writing ultimately, (laughs) like creatively there's the resources are certainly there, but yes. And we're all, you know, billions of us walking around with our unbelievable complexities.
0: Is that hard to contain as a writer, like modulating for Francie, it was these three incidences and then grounding her reality with them and the interplay between them and as she matured is it hard to get a handle on it? Like you had said, you had made a few different scenes and then you alighted on this one. What is your process like trying to, to contain that, that energy? The process, it's
1: interesting as a way to think of it, because I think that's right, that it is, it's trying to make a container that hold something of resonance. I feel like that's the thing I'm trying to do again and again and failing at most of the time. Like there's just so many containers that are like belong in the container store. You know, they're just bland or they're just not holding anything. If the container is a kind of sentence. So, so my process is always a set amount of time and then I can write whatever I want to within that time. Um, and I think what's happened it's I've now, it's been like 20 plus years that I've been working this way. And There's just a lot of material that, that doesn't go anywhere, but that if I have to keep trying and I keep making up something new, eventually something has a kind of sparkle to it or, or I'm interested in it enough to continue it. So, so much is about sort of following whatever I can find myself interested in. And I'm ha- it's happening again now where I'm trying to work on something new and I'll sort of talk to students and at various places and be like the work that shows up on the page is the work that you get. Like for me, I'm not a writer that has an idea in my head that I'm trying to get on the page because that has just never worked. So what shows up on the page and is working is the material that... I have. So I think I'm once again, sort of finding this kind of place of surrender to be like, I guess this is what I'm writing about this round. And I don't know how I feel about it, but it's the only thing that's showing up on the page. So that's what I got.
0: You know, the idea of containers shows up in your book, because one of the things that Francie does toward the end is she needs to build a physical location where she can really access her memory. And it sort of made me feel that a few things. One, that memory is a place. Like the idea of memory, it's like almost a country that you go to. Mm-hmm. And that it was also like, it had to be separate from the rest of her life. It was like this tent that she goes in and it had to be step separate because it had to contain all her memories. Because she was afraid if she really thought about these things, because she's trying to make sense of her life and her childhood, that they could just get stuck in LA when she's walking down the street that if memory happens in a certain time and it just resonated is so true and i wanted to just ask you about this this concept and your experience of writing that
1: yeah thank you it's it was really fun to write about that tent and to think about making concrete a space to consider something deeply and what are the ways we can do this so it's like writing is a way, meditation is a way, therapy is a way, um, reading is a way, like uh, talking to someone is a way, but they all have a kind of structure within them. And I guess I just felt interested in this character kind of arbitrarily having having a vision of this sort of orange canvas tent that she would build. And in that, it would kind of fill ethereally with the effort more even than the content. Like the the book has her thinking about these memories, but it's something about um, the intention. And I, the idea of intention is very interesting to me because with writing, I have a very clear intention, but it's only about time, and it's never about what I'm writing. It's never about the content because whenever I have intention about the content, it really blows up in my face, or it fizzles. It actually doesn't blow up; <laughs> it sort of just becomes. Like the intention just never works, but the one intention that I can follow is the structure of time. And I think for Francie, the intention that she feels is just like, I need to build this tent. And then when she goes in the tent, she finds herself really focused on remembering very deeply and detailedly this, these particular three days. And so then, yeah, what is that tent doing? Um, What does it mean when we look back into the past and try to think about it differently from an older age but try to really sort of feel it and know it in a way that we couldn't maybe when we were little?
0: I think it's too, it's so much about safety.
1: Yeah, right. The container is like a creation for safety. I think that's right.
0: Yeah, that that when we feel safe, we can explore things that... Walking down the street in L.A., we definitely can't explore. Right.
1: Well, and also, like, my mind is needs a focusing agent. Like, you know, like, if I'm... I mean, I can't remember the way Francie can. Like, there's one of the magical elements, I think, of the book is the fact that she can go in this tent and have sort of linear memories. Like, that's not... There's a moment where she sort of dusts or her cousin dusts it with one of these magical objects. And sort of part of that was me wanting to be like, there is a little fairy dust on this tent because... Um, it's hard to do that still, and yet it certainly feels impossible to do it,
0: just living out daily life. One of the things about Francie that I find so interesting, because we don't fully know, and it's it would be a label anyway, like how how much or little did she inherit of this mental illness, and how much of this is her trying to understand her life through the only lens she's seen like through her mom's experience, um, at a young age. And I was just wondering, it just made me think about how much like that there's almost like a line of mental illness that we can live with. And that, um, before we need help from others.
1: Yeah. And also there's a line about what kind of help we need and what degree of help that can still allow us to be in the world. I think that's completely true. And I suppose, and this is, you know, like I really want it to be a reader's interpretation of where you would put her. Um, but I also wanted to have a real disconnect between what she might imagine of herself and what she actually does. Like if we really think about her as character, is she able to be functioning? What is she doing? And what are her, it goes back to what you said in the beginning about her own maybe unawareness of how um, how much she's kind of doing, functioning, doing her stuff, um, but how much inside her mind is sort of swirling with the worry.
0: And she has this, like her relationship with her cousin who is eight years younger than her is very sweet, I mean, and also very honest. I mean, she's like her confidant in all levels. And Vicki, her cousin, is very grounded, didn't have the instability in childhood that Francie had. I just wanted to ask you about writing this relationship and, and why you decided it would be this eight-year difference in them and her cousin.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting, and this is where you kind of um follow what shows up on the page so in that scene at the beginning she's talking there's like this phone conversation that you referenced earlier and the the aunt is pregnant and and that just flew out of the scene like that was just something i was discovering as i was writing this scene but then in looking back and sort of how do you build upon a novel well she's pregnant okay then there's a baby you know there's a baby that's if all goes well is going to get born and so that became vicky and and to imagine i think it just I really enjoyed writing about both of them and how Francie would really need Vicky's sort of love and stability, but that Vicky also felt a real um, fascination and respect for Francie's own differences and struggle and sort of eccentricities. And so wanting, like there's this rose that is found when she's in high school that she actually throws out and there's a scene where Vicky tiptoes to the garbage can and retrieves it and Francie sort of watches her and, and Vicky kind of, is sitting there being like, I want to give this to my grandchildren. This is a thing that popped out <laughs> of the inanimate. You know, this is like this this contact with magic that you have that I don't have, that I would say in this book comes from Francie living in those two realms. She's able to sort of witness these things in a way that someone else might not. And for Francie, it's sort of confusing. Why would she have this rose? Is it sort of a weird fetishizing? But for Vicky, I think it comes, it's actually. In the same way that like a grandchild will sometimes follow up on the history of a grandparent's trauma that the child won't, that it'll skip a generation, that that there's interest in looking at something when you're not as close to it. So I think it was just it was it was a pleasure for me how comfortable Vicky was sort of calling Francie out. Francie's, you know, sitting there in her tent. So it was good for her to have someone that they could actually engage
0: so you were saying and I can see how like seeds are born when you sit down in that flow of I don't know if you would describe it as a subconscious flow yeah. but you were saying you enter the page with the container of time not with the container of content yeah. is that accurate and so when you go in and you start writing and maybe I'm not sure what the first scene of this story was that you wrote I'd love to hear but when you go back to the page the next day are you like I want to get this mood back, or I want to keep going? Or, like it's such a mystery how people keep the momentum, and right. I'm just trying to peel the curtain back.
1: Sure, of course. Um, for me, it's the next day is always a really interesting day. Or Ray Bradbury talks about first draft, you burn down the house, and second draft, or even just second look, you you know pick your way through the ashes and the debris. And I've always liked that because it does feel like there is this sort of the flow has this kind of just like I'm going where it's going. And, and the second day is the day that I'll look back and see if I have any interest in rereading it. And I honestly can't predict, like, there've definitely been times that I have thought that was an excellent writing day. And then I look back the next day, and I'm just instantly bored. And so if my own boredom is sort of my gauge, or like George Saunders talks about a little like, um, meter on his forehead of like, you know, good, bad, you know, like, do I feel that this is, for me, it's a lot about sort of interest, like, do I feel con- continued interest, the momentum can only come out of continued interest. And if there's no interest there, I have to work on something else. And, and that there are writers who will push through the lack of interest and find something on the other side. But I just don't like I feel like if there's no interest there, that means there's no resonance, like, if I'm hunting like with a metal detector for the unconscious material, which I can't know because it's outside of my awareness, then the way I know has to do with how a sentence reads to me. So it's very, it's, it's very whack-a-mole. It's very like, you know, hunting for the thing that, that I guess, <laughs> if this is the whack-a-mole, there's a mole popping up to be whacked that gives me something to do. Um, but it means that it'll accumulate Slowly and misshapenly. And there wasn't a really entry scene for this. There were just moments of kind of imagining this butterfly falling out of this lampshade and imagining a character who was going to live with her aunt. And I didn't know why.
0: What question, you know, kept you going about this? I guess the question
1: of um, what did this time of transition mean to her or why is she so interested? Why is it so important to go into it so deeply? Why is the past of such a kind of black hole, dark pull on her? And yeah, so maybe that's in there, but it's not consciously in my mind either. I'm not thinking of a question. I'm just looking each day to be like, what can I tolerate working on today? You know, is there anything that I enjoy working on and then I'll find this scene and be like, okay, I I like this scene and wanting to accumulate scenes that have a kind of energy to them in that way
0: one thing about Francie was she was i guess i would say she was a minimalist she didn't have much in her life she lived in this apartment and i think having few items allowed more room for her brain like all the things going on she's just so focused on her cognitive and mental abilities and trying to figure out like mm-hmm. her life but that's also coming from a sensing place too of, like perception so much about like almost what your body remembers yeah um and so her job when she got older was she went to yard sales and sold things online so she would like accumulate things and let them go which is almost like this act in itself like for a brief moment she owned them and then she let them go and I was just wanted to ask you about how you determined that this was going to be her her thing
1: yeah and you're I mean there is a real spareness to her and maybe a feeling in me of wanting to clear out certain things because she's really focused on a certain task like she really has a task at hand which is to remember a certain time and really like get it into her mind because it wasn't articulated to her because I think that is something about childhood right and so why those objects, I mean, I'm just continually interested in objects and all we put into them. I mean, the blueberry, just like how much we project, how much I project onto objects, but I know I'm not alone in it. And so having, and I, and I think yard sales still feel interesting to me also, cause I feel like so many of us are overrun with stuff. And the whole Marie Kondo movement becomes, you know, this way for us to contend with piles of things that accumulate over time. And then what happens to those things and how do they get not seen or I've been quoting Walker Percy, who has a great essay where he's like when a person looks in their closet and says, I have nothing to wear. It's not that they have nothing to wear. It's that they've seen everything so many times that they, they no longer can see them. So what if we apply that to our life, to our, the rooms that we inhabit to even our same thoughts, like how much of the stuff just gets so overfamiliarized? familiarized. And I wanted Francie to kind of have a bit of a gift to see the things that get so overcome by, um, the lives that they accompany that they've been forgotten. And of course she's kind of like that, but I also feel like it's not even that driven psychologically by her. And I mean, it is, and it isn't, it just also feels like she has, A relationship to the world of objects. She's seen things made into real things that used to be objects. And maybe she's doing that on multiple levels.
0: One of the things you write early in the book was that her great love was delineation. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, I think it's totally the container stuff that you were talking about earlier, which is just how do you if you, her parent has no delineation at certain moments, at certain moments, her mom was able to be a good mom. And at other moments she really couldn't because the blur between worlds um, got so fuzzed. And so for the child of that person, you want delineation cause you wanna know, well, let me find out what's real and what's not real. And there are certain moments in her life that aren't clear what's real and what's not real. Um, but, yes, making the container for memory is a way to delineate memory from the present and a way to try to contain and mark
0: lines, yeah. I think it had something to do too, with her physical body because I think when she said this, she was young. Um, she was on the playground. she yeah, she would like stand up next to walls. yeah, and she would freeze. Yeah, And like the kids would go back to class and they am like, get Francie. Like they just thought she was playing freeze tag. Yeah. But it's, I think it just made me think a lot about that connection between our mind and the, our body and the space we take up in the world. And that there was some kind of linkage to that physicality to these items that became dead, but inanimate. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think that's totally right. And that it is, there's this part that I worked on extensively of just trying to get this idea that even in freeze tag, when she's frozen, but was trying to tune into the world and her body in the world and really her presence in the world. And to be like, there's, this is the smell and these are the things around me that that actually was a more legitimate uh, being present than her sort of faking it in the classroom when she wasn't exactly sure how to, interact with people and yeah so so wanting that delineation too of of like what are the spaces like there's a moment where she's putting her nose against the wall just to sort of feel herself there and to feel herself separate from the wall so yeah that's completely connected to the objects coming out of the room shape. totally
0: It's interesting though how these things ground her like how some of her her own, Psychosis, I wouldn't really call them that, but just like mental, right. these moments of mental instabilities or questions actually end up bringing her back to being grounded. Like she knows what she needs, or that right. these three incidences of the butterfly and the beetle and the roses actually bring her back like more firmly in reality.
1: I mean, completely. And this is where writing anything skewed from reality like usually it would be very strange if a character that was a real person asked to be locked in their room but all i'm really interested in sometimes is making concrete something that is internal and that gives me something to work with as a writer because i have this concrete thing same with any magical element concretizes something else without knowing what its symbolic weight is without knowing what the meaning is so but i i part of me also feels like there is there should be more room for this for us in life as well, like, why can't we in some ways make physicalize some of the things that we're thinking about? I mean, my first novel has a guy who wears a number around his neck to indicate his mood and because he wanted everyone to know and he would change it during the day. And if it was a higher number, he was in a good mood and a lower number, he was in a bad mood. And I think it's that same yearning in me to be like, what can we make overt that is tucked inside ourselves so that it can just be ready to be talked about? So if some, you know, or I think of strange writer routines like all the writers that have these sort of little eccentric routines that's all that is is that sort of theater around creating a space for an internal expression so I love that stuff I wish there was more yeah
0: I wish mood rings were more accurate
1: right they're so not right my children are always like why am I does it say I'm romantic
0: (laughs) because you're hot (laughs) it says it's purple
1: it says it's romantic I don't want to be romantic and I'm like yeah Exactly. You, just were, you were just
0: running. You were just <laughs> sweating from the tag game. So can you read something that um, another author wrote that influenced you as a writer?
1: Yes. So what I picked, because I'm on my third round of reading, Housekeeping by Marilyn yeah. Robinson, and it really did, it does influence me as a writer. And for this book, I know it's influenced many, many writers. It's such a brilliant novel. But she moves so close and into this idea of perception and a kind of loneliness that is articulated so beautifully. Um, and and there is also an aunt. There is like a, you know, just sort of surface level similarity where you have children staying with an aunt who's, they've been, um, they don't have any other adults to take care of them. So there's, the house has been flooded and They're just calling to her, and it's just a half a page. Here, her voice came from the porch. I'm just getting some wood. I've never seen such a dark night. We'll come back in. We heard the wash, wash, wash of her footsteps. I really never have, she said. It's like the end of the world. Well, let's go back upstairs. But Sylvie had fallen silent again, guessing that she must be listening to something. We were silent too. The lake still thundered and groaned, the flood waters still brimmed and simmered. When we did not move or speak, there was no proof that we were there at all. The wind and the water brought sounds intact from any imaginable distance. Deprived of all perspective and horizon, I found myself reduced to an intuition and my sister and my aunt to something less than that. I was afraid to put out my hand for fear it would touch nothing or to speak for fear no one would answer. We all stood there silently for a long moment. Lucille said in a very loud voice, I'm really tired of this. Sylvie patted at my shoulder. It's all right, Lucille. I'm not Lucille, I said. So that's Marilyn Robinson's first brilliant novel, Housekeeping.
0: Do you wanna say anything more about it?
1: Um, I mean, I just, there's a pace to that book that I find um, an antidote to social media, frightening politics, Twitter, you know, all this stuff that there's something she's really taking her time considering perspective, perception, as we were talking about, and it floods with feeling, flood pun not intended, but um, and that she's able to take these states of mind, like that moment of saying, All these things reduced, I felt myself reduced to an intuition, trying to articulate an experience that's so internal and to render it into language. Um, And she successfully does it again and again. And it's so moving. And it's also Mm -hmm. so affirming of the internal experience. So I just love it. It's such a good book.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah. So what I picked was a little
1: part of the butterfly lampshade that there was this chapter where we find ourselves in the present and we've been sort of in the past up until this point and how to introduce the character wrangling with memory, which is sort of the focus and project of the book. So this is just a little section from chapter eight. One afternoon many months ago, on a day of nothing notable except a certain familiar emptiness rolling out at its edges inside me, after walking home at dusk from my managerial job at the framing store down the street, which I had taken because it was maybe of interest to me, business, although I disliked the place and the hours and the act of constant framing, I'd settled on the balcony, eating a bag of potato chips, gazing at a couple of leafy orange trees, remnants remnants of a bygone grove. For whatever reason, something was unusually quiet inside me that day, looking out, as if some new space had opened up for a moment, like a rotating door revealing its slim aperture of access to the outside. And through this opening, an image had slid into my head, steady and true of what it had been like on the playground in Portland at Lewis and Clark Elementary, those many years ago. There I was, eight years old, standing by myself in the middle of the playground, totally still with the windy air, the diamond pattern fence, the melting cracker taste in my mouth tracking how the other kids running around thought I was still frozen from some long cast long past game of tag. And on the way back to class had swatted my shoulder to unfreeze me.
0: Anything you want to say about that? It's
1: funny. I named a plant steady and true because (laughs) we have a plant that's growing really straight up. And I was like, they're steady and true. There's something so helpful to me about this line, like the memory coming in steady and true about that moment and this aperture opening. And uh, oftentimes it'll be asked to writers, why is this happening on this moment? Why is this happening on this day? You know, how do you define that? But it's something I've always questioned because things open up, you know, and they close down. And the moments, they they are moments to seize and grab, but they're not always clear why they happen at that exact moment. And that here's a, a moment, a very ordinary potato chip sitting on the balcony moment for Francie. But for whatever reason, she has a little readiness to look back. And so I think I just struggled with trying to get the rhythm really right. And because it was a pivot point in the book. And so I wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write in the upper half of our garage. There's a little um, writing sort of space that is all mine for writing. And so I can escape to it, which is really nice.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I finish the amount of time allotted, and then I'm not supposed to write the rest of the day. I'm not allowed, really. When I do the time, I do the time, and then free.
0: (laughs) Who do you show your work first to, to get feedback?
1: I often show it to my longtime friend, Miranda, who loves to read fiction and gives me feedback so fast and so emotionally. She's so emotionally engaged with the work, so it's really helpful. How have you dealt with rejection? I've had some really nice walks with people where you just are trying to process, especially early on, like trying to process the rejection and getting just like nice reflection back about um, confidence in my work. And then also trying, you know, nowadays just to just to not take it seriously, just it comes and goes.
0: And what is your favorite word? I have so
1: many. I have a whole exercise for class on this. But I'll do broomstick because it's a great word. I really enjoy it, all the parts.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Thank you so much, Mitzi,
1: for your thoughtful comments and questions. I loved hearing your reflections.
0: It was really a pleasure. If you liked today's show with Amy Bender, author of the novel The Butterfly Lampshade, check out my interview with her sister, Karen Bender, author of The New Order. We talked about controlling a narrative, emotional responses to fiction that feature real-life issues, and writing stories that change people and inspire action. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Keith O'Brien, No Violet Bulawayo. Jacinda Townsend, Aided Limon, and Soon Wiley. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.